Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. I'm Simon Carley. And I'm Rick Boddy. And today we're going to be talking about chest drains, intercostal drains, chest tubes, whatever you want to call them. Chest tubes, I really like the sound of that. It reminds me of ER and Code Black. And more traditional, a chest drain is what we did. But we're talking about taking blood, fluid or air out of the chest. This is pretty core to emergency medicine really. It's one of those skills that we need to know how to do, treating pneumothoraces, treating our trauma patients, treating our medical patients with effusions and things. It's certainly in the UK, it's not something that we're doing you know, every hour, but it's certainly something which is common enough and dangerous enough that we really need to know what we're doing. Because there's quite a lot of evidence out there that in unskilled hands, you can do quite a lot of damage. We've heard of case reports of people putting them in the left ventricle taking liver biopsies. I've not done it with a chest drain. I've, I've seen it put into the left ventricle and when I was doing not working in emergency medicine and, and that didn't have a good outcome. I did see one, somebody do a liver biopsy once and come back with normal myocardium. <laughs> but the point is that when you're putting big lines and big things into that area, the potential for harm, and particularly when the anatomy has been distorted by disease or trauma, the potential for you doing things badly is definitely there. And there's, there's lots and lots of case reports of this happening. It's one of those skills which we need to be good at we need to be able to be slick at it and we need to be safe. If you want to know how to put a chest drain in, go to YouTube now and go look at a video or go into a skills lab or something like that. Somebody will tell you how to do it. This podcast and the blog that goes with it is some of the tips and tricks that we picked up over the years just to make it a little bit slicker, a little bit better for us, for our patients. So that's kind of what we're going to And to maybe do a little bit dogmalysis around some of the myths about chest drains yeah, we've got some really good handy hints for you. And the first one is with regard to the size of the chest strain. Now, I can remember when I first started in Manchester and I had a patient with a spontaneous pneumothorax and I had been taught by the respiratory physicians that pneumothoraces needed to be treated with large bore chest drains. So I proudly inserted my large bore chest drain took the repeat x-ray and when my patient was completely better with a re-expanded lung, proudly presented this at our educational board round to the eminent Simon Carley, who said, why did you put in a large bore drain again? You know, the poor guy had a, basically had a spontaneous pneumothorax and now he had this like massive 32, 36 French drain hanging out of his chest. Admittedly, he didn't have a pneumothorax anymore, but he did have a big hole in his chest. Yeah, he did. And you made me think. So I, I, I realised that I was doing that because I'd always been taught to do it that way. But when I questioned why we're taught to do it that way, it made me look at the evidence and realise actually it seems to be wrong. We can treat spontaneous pneumothoraces with Seldinger chest drains and small gauge chest drains. So I changed my practice, of course, for spontaneous pneumothoraces at that stage. There's now some evidence that we might be able to use Seldinger chest drains for patients with traumatic pneumothorax. So Seldinger is basically the technique. So you put the needle in, you put the wire through the needle, and then you use the dilators to go over the top. And you can actually get some quite large Seldinger chest drains. But generally when we're talking about this, and you're, one of the things you'll find when people are talking about it, they'll say Seldinger and equate that with smaller. And I'm quite happy with that. So there's the, the sort of the open versus the, the closed te- Seldinger technique and then the size as well. In terms of the size, I think it is interesting. The suggestions of the sizes for some of the drains for our trauma patients it's really quite large. 40 French. Have you seen a 40 French? I certainly wouldn't want one of those inside my thoracic cavity. No, no, neither would I. I mean, I could have it running down the side of the house, taking rainwater off the roof. But these things are big. To get them in, you've got to make a fairly big hole. And it's quite difficult to do. It's always been put to me that you have to have a large drain because of the risk of blood clotting. And there are a couple of things that really spring from that. We both deal with paediatric trauma as well. And, and in small children, we don't put in 40 French drains. We just can't. And yet blood flows. There have been some studies now that certainly comparing the very large, the 36 to 40 French, with the small as the 28 to 32. 
okay, it's observational data, it's not a randomized controlled trial, etc., etc. But there appears to be no difference. And in some animal models, they've even gone down much further to even things as small as a 14 French and not shown a massive difference. Although, again, that was quite a short period of time. At the moment, it's pretty clear to me that the evidence would say 28 to 32 is probably okay. And the 36 to 40 seems a little bit excessive. And just, you know, have a think about it. Do what your local programs say. Don't get sacked on what we say on the podcast. But those massive ones, I'm not convinced. No, I'm not too. And in my experience, they're pretty uncomfortable as well for the patients. So I've definitely changed my practice going towards smaller chest drains. And as for the pneumothoraces? Yeah, I absolutely use Seldinger small bore chest drains nowadays. Yeah, I seem to remember the argument going back that we actually, <laughs> this is how nerdy we got is actually going away and calculating the flow rates of air at room temperature and at normal atmospheric pressure through the different gauges and working out that the guy would have to be breathing about, you know, a thousand litres a minute to, to and overcome it. Anyway. Yeah, so that, but that, there's our first point about the small bore chest drains being quite useful for us. The second thing we wanted to bring up was the point about occult pneumothoraces. And in the era of major trauma centres, we detect these quite a lot. Our patients will go for rapid CT scans and we'll detect small pneumothoraces that would be invisible on a chest x-ray that perhaps aren't causing any symptoms for the patient. They give us a problem because ATLS always taught us that uh, traumatic pneumothorax will need a drain. But these small drains that we did wouldn't have otherwise detected, do they really need a drain? And we've seen it also with ultrasound, because we've got now that basically in the old days we used to use chest x-rays. We miss loads of stuff on chest x-rays, believe me. Now we use ultrasound, we can detect smaller ones. And as you say, CT, you can pick up tiny pneumothoraces. That really has made us stop and think, because if you've got this sort of tiny localised apical pneumothorax, yes, it's traumatic. How the hell are you going to get a drain into that? I mean, you're going to have to go in and then sort of push along the way to get a drain in. And you think, this is insane. I shouldn't be doing this. So I think we've stopped doing that, certainly for the spontaneously breathing patients. I think it's really clear now that if you've got very small pneumothoraces and the patient isn't compromised, then observation in a high dependence area is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. What about the patients who are going to get ventilated, though? Because those are the ones that everybody said, oh, well, you know, it's tiny now. Well, if I ventilate them, it's going to get terribly bad. Yeah, you know, they used to make me worry because we, we recognise the potential for the patient to get worse and we worry that we won't spot it in time. So I have to say I had a low threshold for putting chest drains in such patients. But interestingly, on the blog, you've got a very nice reference to um, essentially a meta-analysis or systematic review of three randomised controlled trials where patients with occult traumatic pneumothoraces were randomised to chest drain or conservative management and they included ventilated patients quite a large proportion of the patients were ventilated and they had no worse outcomes it's interesting to me to think that one through if you do ventilate somebody with a pneumothoraces then there is the risk of it getting bigger there is the risk of it becoming tension but if you know it's there and you're in a high dependency area and you can monitor it and you can look out for it it is an eminently treatable condition it's not that you can't treat it later so you can intervene in time and the flip side is that putting chest drains in themselves has a significant morbidity. Infections, pain when the patient's waking up and trying to spontaneously breathe again. It's not without risk on both sides. And so I think we need to think quite carefully about whether we do that. And obviously that will be a conversation we have with our critical care physicians. Having read the references that are on the blog, I am much less likely to want to put a chest drain in to a ventilated patient if he's occult and not causing any symptoms. The other thing is, before we started doing all these CT scans, these patients had cult pneumothoraces that we didn't spot on the chest x-ray and we ventilated them. So I think we've been doing this 
for years. We just didn't know about it. And it's one of those really interesting things in medicine that when we get new technologies and we can find smaller pathologies, we need to change the way that we practice on the basis of that new technology, not just do what we always did on the basis that we can now find things that we didn't find before. Now, the third issue we wanted to talk about was analgesia. So putting a chest strain into these patients with major trauma is quite uncomfortable. I was in recess fairly recently and we were putting a chest strain in and there was a police officer there and the police officer was looking increasingly white, sweaty and, and sort of unpleasant. And I said, well, what's up with you? And he said, well, I've never actually seen somebody stabbed in the chest. You know, I've seen picked up people at the roadside and I've seen the effects of it. And I've never actually seen it done. And I stopped and thought, well, actually, essentially, that's almost what we're doing. We're making a hole in somebody's chest and we're shoving our finger off forceps through and then we're putting a pipe in there and then we're sewing it in. This is pretty brutal stuff and it hurts. Certainly in my early years, I remember some really appalling, if I look back on it now, episodes where, you know, we were almost fighting with the patients to try and get the drain. And it was a very unpleasant experience for everybody involved, particularly the patient. In general, we've underdone analgesia. Traditional teaching is you use local anaesthetic here. So you use local anaesthetic to numb the skin, numb the subcutaneous tissues, the intercostals, get into the plane of the intercostal nerves and then do the pleura. Rick, how good are you at doing that in the acutely traumatic patient? Well, it's never going to get you anywhere near sufficient analgesia for the chest strain. You're going to need something else. There'll be somebody out there who's listening to this who say, oh, I always get perfect analgesia. That's great for you. If that's you, that's fantastic. But it's not our experience. What we genuinely believe is that you need supplemental analgesia to assist you getting an open chest strain to patients. For the Seldingers, I can accept you can easily do the Seldingers under local anaesthesia. But for open drains, systematic analgesia is important. And the drug of choice, surprisingly, is... Special K, ketamine. It's marvellous. It really is good in your trauma patients. It calms them down. It calms you down. It calms everybody else in the room down. It's great for analgesia. It's got an amnesic property, so they don't remember this traumatic experience. For me, it certainly transformed the way that I put chest strains in. And how do you give the ketamine? Little and often. IV is clearly the way forward and we're using sub-anaesthetic doses clearly so in a 70 kilo guy they've usually had some opiates already in our practice so i'm using this as a supplemental analgesia on top of opiate analgesia so i'll be giving them some like 20 milligrams seeing how they go giving them another 10 milligrams 10 milligrams 10 milligrams and building them up they usually end up having somewhere between about half a milligram per kilo and one maybe 1.5 milligrams per kilo depending on the length of the procedure so we're not talking big doses here i'm not trying to knock them flat but I'm giving them enough that they can be cooperative with the procedure, not jumping off the bed, not massively hallucinating, but just making the whole thing a lot calmer. I've started to use a lot more ketamine in my practice. I think it's a fantastic analgesia for the trauma patients. What about intrapleural analgesia? So we talked about the subcutaneous analgesia, how we infiltrate and we go through the different layers. Uh, we also talked about giving some intravenous analgesia. What about putting some local anaesthetic down the chest drain? I'm a big advocate of this. It's actually one of the very first bets that we did, the best evidence topic reviews. If you've not had a look at those, and you should, bestbets.org. This is about putting the local anaesthesia into the chest cavity itself. This has been done for longer term things. I think people even put intrapleural catheters in for surgical patients. And it's something we had a look at for our trauma patients. When you get into the chest, the visceral pleura doesn't have much in the way of pain sensors. The parietal pleura does. As you expand the lung and 
it comes up, it starts pushing the drain again to the parietal pleura, it gets sore, you obviously made a hole in it, it's quite an uncomfortable experience. And you'll often see patients when they expand, coughing and getting pain, pleuritic, respirophasic type chest pain as the lung expands. So there is some logic in injecting local anaesthetic across the surface of the parietal visceral pleura to give you a surface anaesthesia. There are actually some randomised controlled trials that support this. And the idea is you inject making sure that you're not going to overdose the patient on local anaesthetics. You've got to be careful about this. I inject bupivacaine into the thoracic cavity, either down the drain once it's in, or as I'm actually numbing up the skin as best I can before the procedure starts. And certainly if I'm just using lignocaine to local anaesthetize the skin, if I end up in the pleural cavity, which is not uncommon, let's face it, quick five mils into there, as the lung comes up, it will spread over the surface. And there's reasonably good evidence that that will provide better analgesia for those early few hours when your patient is getting used to having a chest draining. And actually, from a respiratory function point of view, from a pneumonia point of view, from getting empyemas and just ventilating that side of the chest, that's a good thing to do. This is something that I've been doing for a while now. I can't say I've noticed that it's dramatically beneficial, but the evidence from RCTs does suggest that it gives a benefit, particularly in the first four hours after insertion of the chest drain. And if the evidence is suggesting that, then I don't see any reason why I should stop with that practice. And it's pretty safe so long as you don't overdose your patient on local anaesthetics and there's always a risk of that. So just be careful with that. But yeah, go for it. I tend to use local anaesthetic lincane for the skin and stuff and then I use the papivacaine down the drain once it's in. So one of the worst problems that we can have with a chest drain is when we've done all of that work getting it in, we've given them fantastic analgesia, we've got it in, we look really slick and then we take the patient to CT and the chest drain falls out. <laughs> yeah, it's not a way to look good. You need to know how to tie these in. And that's, we're not going to be able to do that on a podcast. No, we can't demonstrate it, unfortunately, on an audio podcast. But what we can tell you is go and learn to tie knots. Seriously, go and learn to tie knots. It drives me insane when we're putting a chest drain in and I'm teaching somebody to put chest drains in and they're showing me how to do it. We get the drain in and the procedure to tie it in takes four times as long as it does to actually get the drain into the chest. And for our trauma patients in time critical situations, that seems nuts. Go and learn how to hand tie. Loads of videos on YouTube. You don't need me to show you. And learn how to tie the drain in. And there's a great video from Neil Bandery. He's now based out in Australia, was based in the south of UK, who learned what's called the Joburg knot, which is a, a, a fairly complex way of putting drains in. It's the sort of thing which, if you're doing this on a regular basis, I think you could learn. For most of us, we're going to do something slightly different. So the trouser version or the wraparound version. Again, there are demonstrations of that on YouTube or via the blog that we can send you. This is eminently practicable. Get yourself a chest drain, get yourself some sutures, go and watch telly or something like that, listen to the radio probably because you should be watching what you're doing, and go and practice. Get yourself slick. It will make you feel good, it'll be good for your patients, it'll be good for the trauma team, and you'll look good. And we all want to look good in the research room. So looking good and slick and good doing it fast so your patient can get to CT quickly is very important. But also, another important aspect that we have to neglect, I think, is having practice in putting the dressing on. <laughs> that can be done really badly. Yeah, I agree. There's a couple of little tips on the blog about using clear, transparent dressings um, next to the skin so that you can get a coverage over the knot, over the skin, over the incision site which is visible when you take the top covers off. 
And that, that's something I learned from, I think, my colleagues over in Salford in Manchester. Really nice little um, technique to do that. Um, and then the dressings over the top to make sure that it's, it's well protected and doesn't get caught or pulled out and things like that. These finishing elements, you know, putting a chest drain is not about getting, it doesn't stop when you put the drain into the chest and you connect it to the seal. It's about making sure that it's secure as well. Because as you said, nobody wants to be the person who has the chest drain fall out in CT because you will look like an idiot. We all, we've talked a lot about CT imaging and we've talked about the limitations of chest x-ray. We mentioned ultrasound, but you find that ultrasound quite an, a useful technique when you're putting in chest drains in certain situations. I do. We can use it to find out the best place to put a chest drain in, particularly when we're draining fluid in some of our medical patients, for instance. And there's good evidence that that will reduce your complication rate. Particularly if you've got patients who've got chronic lung disease where they may have adhesions and things like that, it can be quite difficult to know the right place to go. And even pneumothoraces can be stuck on the anterior of the chest. And I've seen a couple of those. I've even seen one go wrong where somebody put a drain into the lung because the area where they'd selected in the triangle of safety was actually where the lung was adherent to the chest wall. Ultrasound is a way that we can use to look and see where either the pneumothorax is or we can use it to see where the fluid is and we can select and make sure that we're going in the right place. I think that's quite useful. The other thing I use ultrasound for is when I'm doing things like draining a spontaneous pneumothorax, so either by a small cell linger or by aspiration, is I will use the ultrasound to make sure that the lung has actually come up. Aspirating, aspirating, aspirating. If I then put the ultrasound on and I know that the lung is up, I know I've actually aspirated. That's really quite useful because then if I then subsequently send them off and get a chest x-ray done, the lungs collapse down again. I know that it's not my technique that failed. It's the problem was the lung is just going down again. Get on and put a chest drain in. I can also use that to determine whether or not this, the system is actually working. So I've got to get everything connected up and is it all coming up and making sure that the patient feels that the lung has expanded. So I think I think that's quite useful. So I use it as a dynamic tool as well in that sitting. And I can really appreciate the benefits of that. I mean, the alternative is wait for a chest X-ray, which can take twenty minutes, and you've taken the needle out and the cannula out by that stage, and it's not as good as actually seeing that the lung has uh, reinflated before you take the cannula out. Yeah, and it wouldn't be necessarily perfect, but you'd be pretty confident that you got ninety nine percent of it out. So how about we talked a little bit about aspirating the uh, pneumothoraces. So let's say we've got a spontaneous pneumothorax and according to our British Thoracic Society guidelines it meets the criteria for warranting aspiration rather than necessarily a chest drain. But there are a few considerations about that because it can be quite a scary procedure for patients when you come at them with a needle and stick it right in the top of their chest. There's a couple of things there. So where do you put it is the first one. There's a bit of controversy about that. So most people in the UK will put them in the anterior part of the chest, in the second intercostal space, in the midclavicular line. There's quite a lot of work out there that's it's a bit controversial still that says that you can still do it in the triangle of safety. So fifth intercostal space in the anterior axillary line. That's fine. I don't mind which. Look at your patient's body habitus is a good clue and recognise that if you're doing this using a standard IV cannula, it's certainly a larger patient, you may struggle to get into the pleural space actually. Where you do it, I don't mind one of those two. I don't think there's great evidence either way. Whether you do it with just a cannula or whether you actually just put in a small seldinger, again, it's a bit of a controversy. I've done both. Not so much the seldingers because I'm still following the BTS guidelines, but I know of many uh, esteemed colleagues who are now just going, I'm just going to put a very small seldinger in. I'm going to aspirate through that, clamp it, send them around. If it's great, I'll take it out because it's not really that much bigger than a cannula. And if it doesn't work, well, I've already got my chest drain in so the patient doesn't need a second procedure. And I think that's actually quite a good way of doing it. So I think that we're probably going to move in that direction. If you're actually doing it with a cannula, if you actually set that up and you can play with this at home, if you've got a cannula and then you have a three-way tap on the end of it and then you have a 50 mil syringe on the end of that, it's about 35 centimetres long. There's a big unwieldy thing. And then if you stab your patient in the, in the midclavicular line anteriorly, 
you're basically pumping this thing up and down in front of them. I'm demonstrating this now. This is not working on a podcast. Demonstrate pumping this thing up and down in their face. It tends to get kinked. It tends to move around. It's unwieldy. The best tip I've got for that is that you use a piece of connector tubing between the cannula in the chest and the three-way tap on the syringe so that you can hold it by the patient's side and you don't have that massive leverage moving backwards and forwards in front of their face. It's small things like that. I actually think it makes it much, much easier to do. And so I'd strongly recommend you give that a try. And again, you can mock this up, go into your research room, get a bit of kit out there, mock it up and see how it works. And if you want a picture of it, again, pictures on the blog. And you can imagine how much more professional that's going to look and how much nicer it's going to be for the patient and how much less likely it is that the cannula is actually going to kink and get it come out of position. We've perhaps got one more tip. Shall we talk about positioning the tube in the chest? Yeah, doesn't matter. <laughs> Basically, it doesn't really matter particularly much. There was a, again, when I trained, the idea was that you put uh, chest drains for pneumothorax at the top, chest drains for fluid at the bottom. So you directed them either upwards or downwards or anteriorly, posteriorly, depending on where you think the pathology is. Most of the studies that have been done looking at this, again, patients who've not got a significant chronic lung disease and they've not maybe got adhesions or loculated areas for the patients that we're seeing it doesn't really matter very much at all whether you go anterior posterior it's probably slightly better to go anteriorly rather than posteriorly but again it doesn't seem to make a massive amount of difference so don't get your knickers in a twist about it get the drain in and please resist anybody moving the drain up down sideways front to back unless it's causing a problem i mean if it's causing a problem fair enough you can move it but if it's not causing a problem and it just looks in a funny place you know what leave it and uh, one little tip i have is that I've, I've seen some drains being put in rather enthusiastically from people who really don't want that drain to come out it's worth just having a look at how far you've put that drain in because yeah. where we can see them going right across to the mediastinum <laughs> at times it's a bit like intubation that sometimes you see people that are so excited to get the tube in the right place they think that they're going to shove it all the way in so you, you find the patient that's only ventilating one lung or you find that the chest tube is in to 30 centimeters have a look at the thickness of the chest wall you need to get all the side holes of your chest drain into the chest so I tend to look at how far it is. I can often measure the chest wall using the ultrasound to see if, how deep it is or if it's a very thin person, you can judge it. And then, you know, put it into the appropriate level. Don't try and shove it all the way in. And one other pearl that you gave me over a decade ago, probably <laughs> that same board round, when we, you asked uh, about the borders of the triangle of safety and said, why do we have to go anterior to the mid-axillary line? Oh, yes. Now, this is an interesting one because this is controversial, actually, because a lot of the textbooks will say that you use the mid-axillary line. I've always said that you should go slightly anterior to that and more towards the anterior axillary line because there is a structure which runs down the mid-axillary line. Which is the lung thoracic nerve, and which, I still remember that. Which supplies... Oh, now you're <laughs> testing me, Simon. <laughs> serratus anterior, which means that you won't be able to do those wonderful push-ups if you damage this nerve. Now, in reality... When you actually look at a patient who's lay on a bed, the mid-axillary line is actually usually a little bit further back than most people think. When I say go for the anterior axillary, so just, I, I just go slightly anterior to that mid-axillary line. So if you want to avoid pranging the lower parts of the serratus anterior muscle supply. There we go. It's a masterclass in putting in a chest tube. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a masterclass, but it's been a lot of fun. And these are the sort of things which I think foam ed is pretty good about. You know, These are things that we talk about day-to-day practice is what we try and teach our trainees but you don't necessarily find these in the textbooks no uh, we hope you've enjoyed it it's been useful for me i learned a lot from reading your blog post simon and if anybody's got any ideas that they can improve please get in touch i know that there are people like our south african colleagues who are truly expert in doing this sort of thing so if you've got any ideas or thoughts please pop them on the blog get in touch with us contact us via twitter bottom line is go out enjoy your emergency medicine